Hey, this is a Hakawati production. My guest today promotes international investment as a special advisor. He recently wrapped up almost five years working with Bahrain's Economic Development Board, helping the small Arab country work towards its Economic Vision 2030 goals. Bahrain is now one of the Middle East's hubs for fintech development. It was the first country in the GCC to invest in a post-oil economy and among the first to establish governing regulation for cryptocurrencies. Here to explain how fintech is transforming the Middle East, please welcome Mr. David Parker. Hi, David. How's it going? Hi, Nadia. I'm very well, thank you. How are things with you? Everything is great. Excellent. You're an advisor for the Bahrain Economic Development Board. You've traveled around the world to tell investors and companies how great of a place Bahrain is to do business. What has been the number one concern that you've heard from investors about doing business in the MENA? I've actually just completed uh, a project advising uh, Bahrain Economic Development Board. Uh, I work with cities, regions, countries all over the world, uh, assisting them with their investment attraction. I'm actually still in uh, Bahrain as we speak, talking to you from a beautiful co-working space called Duan. Uh, perhaps we can come back to that later because I do think one of the uh, implications in terms of the future of fintech is the sort of online versus real world uh, argument. But to answer your question. Um, I have traveled all over the world. I have represented Bahrain in many countries, many events around the world, speaking to investors. And for me, the single most common comment that I receive from companies with regards to the, the Middle East, and of course, we're talking about the fintech space here, is it would be more attractive if the region was one single market, as you would get, for example, in the, uh, in the European Union. Um, so I know there's a lot of dialogue taking place at the moment between regulators, particularly here in the, uh, the GCC, uh, but also with other regulators in other parts of the, the region, about how we might make, make that happen. You know, how, for example, um, a fintech graduating from a sandbox in Bahrain could automatically then do business in Saudi without having to go through the same process again there. We haven't made that happen yet. It's work in progress, but I'm very excited um, about the possibility that that brings to the region. I think that will attract a lot more investment uh, and suddenly open up a much bigger market uh, to companies doing business here. Right, because we've given this catch name to this region, the MENA, which encompasses the GCC, the Levant, North Africa, but how cohesive is it really? And how does it compare with the EU, for example, or the US in terms of market and how connected all the the financial sectors are? Absolutely. I mean, in terms of size, it's huge, yeah? I mean, the, the, the Middle East, North Africa region, it crosses, what, three continents, uh, over 20 different individual countries. You're talking about a population that's not far off 500 million and continues to, to rise. So any business anywhere in the world should be looking at this region in terms of critical mass. I also think it's a really exciting time for the region just in terms of developments within the, within the fintech space. Over the last 13 years, I always go back to the financial crisis in 2008. I've worked with fintech ecosystems from uh, the US, New York, to Europe, London, uh, to the Far East, uh, Hong Kong. Uh, and I'm seeing a lot of developments now here in the Middle East uh, that I witnessed in other parts of the world. And what's really exciting 
is the way in which many uh, locations in the Middle East, you know, Bahrain, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and others are really starting to play catch up. Uh, and where I think the magic will start to happen is when the Middle East, instead of playing catch up from a fintech perspective, starts to become a pioneer in its own right. So we start to see new innovations um, that are born um, out of the Middle East that are developed by entrepreneurs and innovators that are either from the region or have chosen the region as a base to build their businesses. Right. And is it important for Arab countries to have their own proprietary fintech technology? Why can't they just buy software from China or the US, for instance? I think they can. Uh, and we see many examples of that. But this is a very unique uh, part of the world. And I think, you know, uh, it's it's widely the, the widely spoken language, although many countries engage in English and other languages, um, is, is Arabic. Uh, and what I what excites me is when I see Um, fintechs emerging in the region that are developing products and services very specific uh, to this marketplace. And Sukamal, uh, for example, is Arabic for money markets. You know, that, that immediately plays better to an Arabic uh, or Middle Eastern audience uh, than might be the case uh, for, for someone coming in from uh, the U.S., Or another market which is a very different, a very different culture. So I think there's certainly space here for international fintechs to grow their businesses, to expand their their global footprint. But I think where it gets really exciting uh, is when we see homegrown businesses that are developing solutions very, very much aimed at uh, the local market. So when we talk about fintech, we're basically talking about online payments, digital banking, um, digital currencies, um, and everything that goes around that. But So how has this accelerated and these technologies accelerated uh, with COVID over the last couple of years? What, what changes have you noticed? I think uh, we've seen an explosion uh, of fintech in the buildup uh, to COVID, and that's just been accelerated now because what COVID has driven many people to do, whether it's consumers, whether it's businesses, whether it's SMEs, whether it's corporates, is to accelerate uh, their digital know-how, their digital understanding, uh, the digital transformation. So, so I think COVID is, is really accelerating that. I mean, what, one example that I always give, for example, for many years in the region, we talked about the move towards a cashless society. Um, I think here in Bahrain, that was still just something we could only dream about a year or so ago. And yet here I am um, coming towards the end of March 2021. And I don't think I visited an ATM this year. Um, all my transactions now are done uh, very much off my phone. Um, I use different payment platforms, uh, but sometimes perhaps through credit cards. But certainly the last thing um, that I seek to take out with me when I leave home is, is, is cash. Now, that's also, of course, driving many businesses uh, to accelerate the move towards cashless. Uh, I've, I've traveled all over the world and the amount of times I've walked out of the airport, jumped in a taxi and they, they take cash only. Well, if people stop using cash, if people stop uh, undertaking their transactions through cash um, because of you know the, the, the risk uh, that, that 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 cash could be con contaminated then, then then businesses have to have to respond to that so, so again one example of something that was probably going to happen over time anyway um, but that we're now seeing happening much much quicker than could ever uh, have been the case I saw a wonderful quote recently that made me smile you know what what you know what what's the thing that's really accelerating 
company's digital transformation? Is it the CE? No. Is it the chief technology officer? No. Uh, it's the other C. It's it's COVID nineteen that they're having to having to embrace this. So, um, I think fintech is going to come out of COVID nineteen uh, in great shape. In fact, who knows? Maybe one of the legacies of COVID nineteen in the MENA region will be will be fintech and also tech fin, um, of course, as well as. Uh, fintechs. We're seeing a lot of technology um, companies now starting to enter the financial services space. You know, well-known examples of that globally, you know, would be Amazon. Um, from China, you've got Tencent. Uh, very excited to say that Tencent Cloud has recently announced the opening of its first data center uh, in the region here in Bahrain. So we're seeing many fintechs, we're seeing many tech fins, uh, whether it's companies with a financial services background or a technology background, they all now really excited about embracing this space. That's a funny quote, by the way. It's like you imagine a, yeah. a wicked master whipping all the companies into shape to comply with a with a new world. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad. We know that's good for fintech companies, for startups, uh, maybe in some ways for economies in terms of job, cre job creation, although that's debatable because a lot of the traditional banking jobs uh, will disappear. Uh, but how is this good for the everyday person? How is this serving people? I think um, when I talk about COVID-19 being a good thing, obviously we must acknowledge you know, the devastating impact that this has had on people's lives, uh, on people's businesses, on people's jobs. There's no question about that. But if you look through your history books, in, in any crisis throughout the course of history, um, it always presents opportunities. Uh, and in many cases, actually, Uh, historically, you know, beyond a crisis actually comes good times. You know, if you look at the uh, the Spanish flu pandemic, which is what, 100 years ago now, you know, beyond that in the States, you have the roaring, the roaring 20s. I, I think that there are certainly, while I acknowledge uh, the problems uh, that COVID has created, the widespread throughout the world, I think there are um, good times ahead. Uh, and I think that's going to create new jobs as well, um, as whole industries um, transform themselves. I mean, take, take the, the healthcare sector, for example, it's been very much under the, under the microscope um, as a consequence of fintech. You know, we're now seeing fintech starting to enter the wellness space, reinvent uh, healthcare. That's creating business opportunities, which is creating jobs. Education, you know, lots of publicity about education and, and the fact that, you know, much education has to be delivered online over the last year or so because of the virus. We're now seeing fintech starting to move into the education financing space. So I think what we'll see um, is a, a, trans, a transition. Uh, these are transformative times. We're entering a new paradigm. There are many jobs, uh, traditional jobs that will disappear, uh, but many new jobs that will replace them. So the challenge for anyone, the challenge for you, the challenge for me, the challenge for people of any generation, but perhaps particularly the younger generation is developing you know the right the right skills that that accountancy course and I'm not having a go at accountants for one minute that someone might have embarked upon at university they might might now look at uh, becoming an expert in blockchain for example or, or having a better understanding of the development and emergence of artificial intelligence so I think what we're going into is a new paradigm um, but I don't see Um, that necessarily meaning that jobs disappear. I just think the jobs market uh, will, will change. And, and, and one thing that um, an optimistic note, uh, if you like, is while fintech is very much about digital, um, we're talking here about digital 
transformation. I do think that digital has its uh, its limitation. Uh, I was reading an article recently by Chris Skinner, who's the well-known author, uh, fintech author and, and speaker, and he was saying how digital you know, augments physical, but it will never replace it. Um, take uh, conferencing, for example. Yes, we all sit on webinars and we all get a lot of value uh, out of webinars, but what can possibly replace you know, walking into a conference room, meeting people, networking, having lunch, having discussions over over coffee, building relationships that might last you know a, a, a lifetime. So, so I don't think digital is going to completely wipe out jobs in a very scary way, uh, as people might fear it will. But I do think uh, we all now have a responsibility to uh, perhaps re-educate, uh, reskill. Uh, and, and ensure that we are equipped personally uh, for the kinds of job opportunities that I think this new paradigm will, will present in the future. Yeah, I totally agree about the advantage of meeting people in person, especially when it comes to building meaningful business relationships. There's something about sizing people up with all your senses versus just seeing them on a screen that's quite different. Um, everything from, you know, the way they walk, the way they carry themselves, um, how they interact with others. You, you're not privy to that when you're sitting just in front of a screen and having meetings and only seeing them during those few minutes um, that the meeting is actually on. But that being said, um, it's pretty ambitious and uh, to see how quickly uh, these countries are investing in fintech. Um, especially if you consider like Saudi Arabia has announced that they're aiming to reach an e-payment target of 70% by 2030, which is incredible um, when you know how few people had credit cards just a few years ago. You mentioned getting into a taxi and, and having to pay cash while, you know, in the rest of the Western world, people have been paying with credit cards for decades now. But that's just not the case in the Middle East. Um, I don't know if people realize that there, there's so many countries still where that's not the case. Um, so it's pretty ambitious to think about numbers like 70% of e-payment, uh, having people pay by by cards or e-payments. Um, but to brush on the, the aspect of uh, a cashless society, what are really the advantages for people? I, I know I'm asking this question again. A lot of people are concerned that not having cash means um, no longer having as much control over their assets, over their money, um, also a loss of privacy. And with having these digital identities and these digital doing everything electronically, um, everything is trackable. I'm just curious, as someone who deals with people in these industries all the time, is this something that people in the industry care about? I mean, they're people too, you know, so you're building these technologies, yeah. but in the end, your children will have to leave, live with this. Do you see any issues yeah. with all of this? Well, two great points there. One one relates more to the you know, to the unbanked, uh, and then the other to uh, digital footprint. So I'll, I'll I'll touch on both separately. I mean, in terms of unbanked, I think this presents opportunities uh, both for individuals and businesses. I mean, a, a, a very good example of that: Beehive, um, the P2P uh, lending platform uh, out of the UAE, uh, launched in Bahrain a couple of years ago, and I was delighted when 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 a small business that I was dealing with that had failed to raise finance from the bank was actually able to raise finance from the uh, the Beehive crowding uh, crowdfunding platform. So there you have a situation where the whole banking sector has been has been bypassed so there's a, there's a challenge there uh, for banks as well of course i'm not one of these people that think that banks will, will disappear but they certainly will need to and are uh, 
um, reposition themselves in a wake of uh, other uh, players, non-banks, if you like, entering the marketplace. So I think the whole unbanked, the whole financial inclusion agenda, which is very relevant, of course, here in the Middle East, North Africa uh, region, is one to watch. Going back to your point about the, uh, the digital footprint, I, I do wonder, you know, we're talking about the, the legacy of COVID-19, whether one of the legacies of COVID-19 is that people do become a little bit more relaxed about their digital footprint. The fact that uh, it could actually serve, uh, it could actually be for the better, not necessarily for the worse. Now, just think about the way that many countries around the world um, have launched digital you know, tests and tracking uh, schemes to manage COVID here in Bahrain. We have an app called Be Aware. So wherever I go, whatever I do, it's being traced on the app. But that allows the government in Bahrain to have access to data that allows it to better understand the virus, better understand what's going on with the virus, where, where hotspots might be, uh, where, where the virus seems to be thriving, and take the necessary action to make uh, the country safer as a consequence of that. Now, if you said to someone, you know, here's the deal, um, keep your data, but COVID is going to hang around for a lot longer and be a lot worse, or allow the government to access your data so they can use it to manage um, this disease, I think most people, myself in, in included, would be very happy for their data to be accessed. <laughs> there are exceptions to that, I'm sure, but, but I, I'd certainly put myself in that, in that category. So I wonder um, whether this is a turning point. And now as a consequence of COVID, um, you know, central banks suddenly start to think, well, wow, and look at open banking, for example. Um, we could really use uh, customer data from banks to allow entrepreneurs to have access to information that previously would have been beyond their, their wildest dreams, and with consumer consent, then develop new innovative products and services, new uh, fintech, fintech platforms that actually make people's lives better, uh, that actually enable you to perhaps get a better deal online than previously would have been the case. So, so I think, uh, but the, 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 there's a need there, I think, for governments to educate uh, people in terms of what's to be gained um, from institutions, fintechs, entrepreneurs, governments having access uh, to data. And of course, it's all got to be done uh, with, with consumer consent. Hmm, interesting. Um, let's talk about jobs again. What is the talent situation in, in places like Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, when these companies come in or if foreign investors come in and establish a presence there? Is there a, a lack of uh, talent to fill all these positions that will be created? I think uh, every country in the world, I mean, even, even Silicon Valley, you know, pays coders lots of money to bring people in from around the world to try to uh, ensure that it has the necessary talent to drive uh, the needs of, of businesses. So, so you know, even, even Silicon Valley, if you like, the, the ultimate tech ecosystem is reliant upon immigrants and is reliant upon uh, overseas talent. But I think the, the end game for any country in Bahrain is no different, is to ensure that uh, the indigenous population um, take priority as far as jobs, as far as opportunities. And that means the indigenous population needs to take priority in terms of education uh, and ensuring um, that they develop the, the skills, you know, these jobs of the future that we were talking about talking about earlier so I, th I think it's it's a transitional uh, process but you know 
because I work in the inward investment space, every country I've ever worked with, there's always this argument for or against foreign investors. You know, um, when foreign investors come in, you know, many people will argue that they provide you know, competition to incumbents, and that's not good necessarily for homegrown businesses. Uh, they might fly in uh, senior executives or talent from other countries, and then the home country would argue that that's you know that that's jobs that could or should have gone to locals. But I, I've been working in the inward investment space now for thirty years, and what I've witnessed time and time again is international companies coming in um, actually uh, create jobs for local people, but also help to develop the you know the skills base uh, for local people. I, I worked for a few years with, with Invest Hong Kong to give an example outside of the region, um, where we were really trying to get our startup ecosystem going. And in the early days, that was almost exclusively driven by international uh, entrepreneurs that had gone to Hong Kong. It's a great base to do business uh, in that part of the world. But what started to happen um, was those international entrepreneurs started to inspire uh, and develop local talent. And just within the three years, this was 2011 to 2014, I was working with Hong Kong that I was involved we suddenly saw the emergence of so many indigenous startups and suddenly it became so much more acceptable and respectable to launch a startup as opposed to perhaps you know, become a, a lawyer or a teacher or, 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 or a doctor as it traditionally been the case. So, so I do think that um, international investment and local indigenous job creation do go together. Uh, they do go hand in hand. International companies develop supply chains, uh, for example. International companies provide opportunities for local SMEs to secure more business deals. Um, so the two go hand in hand. And I think Bahrain has got it right. Um, Bahrain, half the population is, um, is Bahraini, half the population is expat. We do see uh, international expats, myself being one, you know, come to the country um, for jobs, but at the same time, the priority for the government is always what they call Bahrainization, creating more jobs for more local uh, people over time. So, so I think the, the, the international and the indigenous go together. What fascinates me, again, back to COVID, is what does the future hold? So I'm sat here at the moment doing some advisory work with locations in different parts of the world. Um, and I can do that from my laptop, from my iPhone, sat in a co-working space in, in, in Bahrain. So if people can work anywhere, uh, what's the implication of that for the future of the jobs market? What, what if um, uh, a, a company here in Bahrain or elsewhere in the Middle East starts to recruit people from um, America or, or the UK, but those people stay in their home country because they can, because technology allows them to do so, because COVID-19 has taught us that, that can be the case. So, um, although the, the the counter argument to that, of course, is going back to my point earlier about physical interaction. Nothing beats getting the team together for a team building event. Nothing beats walking into the office in the morning and having coffee with your colleagues. So, I think there'll probably be a balance between the two. Uh, but I am fascinated about the future of jobs um, and whether COVID again presents us with a new paradigm where you start to see more people uh, working for a company in one location. In one country 
but based in another. Right. And that's an excellent point. And that brings us back also to the idea of having and being established in the MENA region. One of the advantages is that uh, there's a common language in a lot of these countries. So when you talk about hiring uh, workers in different countries, a company in Saudi Arabia or Bahrain could have access to workers in Lebanon or Cairo, for example, um, where you have specific talents or specific uh, infrastructure. So definitely all uh, things that will be interesting to watch as they develop. And on that note, David Parker, thank you so much for joining me today. I wish you the best of luck in your next adventure. It's been an absolute pleasure, Nadia, and uh, let's look forward to what the future holds over the next year or so. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Hope you enjoyed this. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can join us again soon. Have a good one. <laughs>